Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 this morning. Romans chapter 8. No, I'm not switching books on you, but we're going to begin here this morning. Romans chapter 8. The last time we saw the message of Ecclesiastes is not isolated to just one book in the Bible. We actually, we actually saw the the message of Ecclesiastes taught in our beloved 23rd Psalm. But what about the New Testament? Does the New Testament affirm with Solomon that we live in a Genesis 3 world, one that is filled with futility and frustration, one that has things that are crooked that, that cannot be made, made straight? I mean, maybe, maybe the coming of Christ has, has removed the curse, or, or maybe it has removed it to the point where we have the ability as the church to make crooked things straight. I mean, that's the message that you hear from, from many Christian leaders today. Some of those leaders I could put into quotes. The social justice warriors say we can right the wrongs now that Christ has, has come. The Christian environmentalists say God has given us the planet and so we're to save it. And if we don't do that, then we're not being good Christians. Uh, the prosperity gospel preachers say following Jesus can make you healthy and wealthy even, even on this earth. I mean, did the coming of Christ bring an end to the battle of the sexes and injustice? Is it now the, the church's focus to lead a fix in all of those areas on the, on the earth? I mean, maybe there are laws of prosperity like Kenneth Copeland says. Maybe you can have your best life now like Joel Osteen says, right? Well, Romans 8 actually gives us the the direct answer to all of those, those questions. Look, if you would, at verse 18 of Romans chapter 8. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul says, there's sufferings in this present time because we are now under a curse. They're not worthy to be compared with with the glory that is to be revealed, that's the future that's, that's coming when God's going to remove the curse and, and set it all, set it all right. There's, there's anxious longing. There's eagerly waiting. That's the, that's the person not finding lasting value here, here and now. And why is there suffering? Why is there anxious longing? Because creation has been subjected to vanity, to, to futility. And who subjected it? Well, the answer is right here in verse 20. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. God 
is the one who subjected this entire world to a curse. And the curse reigns even to this day, even after the coming of Christ, even after 2,000 years from the coming of, of Christ. Well, the Apostle Paul had read Ecclesiastes, hasn't he? Or there's the same author of both books, and that's true. Both are true. Paul had read Ecclesiastes, and the Holy Spirit is the author of Ecclesiastes and also the book of Romans. There is a curse, and we're all under it, and that brings futility and frustration, so we eagerly long for it to be removed. We don't find satisfaction here in this life. But look at the end of verse, verse 20. Creation has been subjected to futility. God's the one who subjected it, but look at how he subjected it. In hope. Two little words. There's hope. God subjected it, and there's hope. That means it's temporary. And what is that hope and when will it be realized, the Apostle Paul? Uh, he tells us in verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will also be set free from its slavery of corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know, and all oh, don't we know, that the whole creation groans and suffers the the pangs of childbirth together until now, even until this day, from Genesis 3 until this day. And not only, not only this, but we also ourselves are under that curse, having the first fruits of the, of the Spirit. Look at verse 24. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope for he who hopes for what he's already seen. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. What are we, what are we waiting for? Well, the end of verse 23 says the redemption of our body. That's what we're waiting for. The resurrection, that's what we're waiting for. So vanity, frustration... A curse reigning over the earth and, and in my heart and, and in everything that we touch until now. And even that has been subjected that way in hope. And when will that hope arrive? When will we realize that hope? In the resurrection. The whole creation is groaning until it's released from the curse. And how does Ecclesiastes begin? Vanity of vanities. And how does it end? The conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His words. Because you'll not find what you're looking for here and now. And the hope is that God will bring everything into judgment. He's promised to make right what is wrong and straighten what is crooked. He will one day remove the curse. That's what Revelation 22.3 uh, tells us. There will no longer be any curse. That's the hope. We say, quickly, come, now. <laughs> There won't be any sickness or death. There won't be any more futility and labor, no more injustice. And we will live the way that God intended then, not now. Romans 8 is the Ecclesiastes of the New Testament. It's the cliff note version. What Paul summed up in a few verses, Solomon expounds for 12 chapters in an entire book in the Old Testament. And yet the message is really the same. The earth and life here under the sun, what is repeated over and over, has been subjected to the fall that brings frustration and futility until it is released. And if you don't understand that, you're going to get very disillusioned with life and with God. 
It's where the ideas. Not understanding that is where the ideas like life has dealt me a bad hand. That's where those things come from. Or, or questions like why is God being unfair to me? Or why me? All of those questions come from failing to understand Ecclesiastes and Romans 8 for that matter. Or if you're a believer, I served God, I prayed, I obeyed, and, and I didn't get what I expected. You're missing the message of, of Ecclesiastes. They're all a misunderstanding of reality and life. Life now is not what it's supposed to be. But praise God, he won't leave it that way. And Solomon has been teaching us that, hasn't he? The last time we left Solomon, he'd just begun his pursuit to prove this to us. And so, in chapter 1, he gave us his thesis in verses 1 and 2. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, the curse is operative. Everywhere I look, Solomon says, this is what I'm going to prove to you in the book. And then in verse 3 through 11, he gives us his, his executive summary for the search. No matter where you look, you're not going to find the answer. You're not going to find meaning if you leave God out. Verses 12 through 18... We saw last time he introduced us to his methodology. Solomon lays out his plan. I'm going to look at I'm going to look at work and I'm going to look at wisdom. And then in chapter two, verses one through twenty-six, Solomon initiates his his search. And so that's where we're at. After laying out his strategy to prove to us that life in a Genesis three world is full of vanity, full of futility, full of frustration, Solomon begins his search for meaning, and he does that in a quest with two parts. Solomon's strategy is described in verses 12 through 18, and then Solomon's search is, is implemented in chapter 2. Solomon's strategy, we saw last time, he's going to explore both work and wisdom. He's going to explore doing and thinking. He's going to explore Activity and academia. And he institutes his search, and that's where we left off the last time. He starts with, he starts with activity. He begins the pursuit through looking at pleasure, and he found that was empty, and then he turns to personal success. And that also left him unfulfilled. His success gave him relaxation, wealth, amusement, status, all his flesh could desire, and all of it was a dry well, Solomon, Solomon says. So having concluded that work or activity is not the path to meaning, Solomon now turns to, to wisdom. And that begins in verse 12 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I hope you're there because we're going to start looking at those verses. Ecclesiastes chapter 2 beginning in verse 12. We're going to see what Solomon teaches us today. His search is implemented. He's done with work, and now he's going to turn to, to see if maybe wisdom will find the answer or solve the, the answer to frustration and futility that I feel and that you feel in, in life. And as Solomon looks at wisdom, he makes five discoveries while he's searching for meaning through, through wisdom. He begins in verse 12 with an optimistic discovery. And then he comes to an upsetting realization. And then it brings him to a demoralizing deduction. 
And the last-ditch effort, he has what we'll call the prosperity solution. And then he finally ends with a conclusion. Now, I want to encourage you this morning because in verses 24 and 26, I've been telling you that in the book of Ecclesiastes, God actually shows us how to enjoy things in a sin-cursed world. And for three messages, you're saying, Pastor, where is it? Well, it's here. We are going to see a ray of hope at the very end of chapter 2. In the, when Solomon begins his search, and he, looking, he looks at wisdom, he begins and he makes an optimistic discovery. Look, if you would, at verse 12. Solomon says, So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been, what had been done? He says... What else is there to do other than what I've done? Look at all this, all this success, all this kingdom building. What, what could anybody do beyond that? So, I will turn to, to wisdom now and, and see if wisdom has the answer. I mean, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? You were with us when we looked at Solomon last time after giving himself to pleasure and all of the defilements that comes from, from just, just letting yourself go pouring yourself into, into the wearying pursuit of success, it's understandable why Solomon would begin to, to turn to introspection, to begin to find a measure of comfort in contemplation or, or wisdom. So Solomon sets his mind to consider wisdom. Solomon gets out his pipe and his ascot and his smoking jacket, and he says, I will consider the full range of academia. And look at what he says. I'm going to consider the complete spectrum of all approaches, from wisdom to madness to folly. I'll look from logic to the postmodern idea that there is no such thing as truth. You can make up your own. And I'll look at everything in between. Solomon's idea, as he considers wisdom, is surely if he evaluates all of the different, different branches of philosophy... Surely he can take bits and pieces from each one, a little bit from Aristotle, a little bit from Plato, maybe even a little bit from Freud, maybe a little bit from whoever. I can take bits and pieces from each one and I can, I can find meaning. Kind of like pick the flowers and leave the weeds approach. Maybe, unfortunately, some of the way you all read your Bibles. If anyone could do that, Solomon could. I mean, if anybody could evaluate all of the philosophies that are out there, Solomon is the one who, who could do it. I mean, philosophers come and they go. And, and one philosopher says, this is the way to think. And another philosopher comes along and says, no, 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 that's not the way to think. This is the way to think. And then another philosopher comes along and says, no, no, that guy's wrong. I'm right. And on and on and on it, it goes. But Solomon the Bible tells us, was the wisest man that, that ever lived. Listen to what First Kings says about Solomon. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. So Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. 
Verse 34 of that same chapter says that people came from all over to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And Solomon uses that ability and he makes a a positive discovery. Look at what he finds whenever he turns to wisdom and he runs the gamut here. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. It becomes clear to Solomon that wisdom is superior to the acquisition of stuff and pleasures. And it also becomes clear to Solomon that wisdom is better than than folly. Sharpening your mind and thinking through life is far better than stumbling through it like a clumsy fool. Solomon says, or, or with your arms full of stuff. Solomon finds learning is better than ignorance. He makes a, he makes a positive discovery. It, it's like light over, over darkness, he says. And he explains a little bit more in verse 14. Why does he say this? The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in, in darkness. He says wisdom excels folly. Because a wise man knows where he's going. And a fool is often surprised by, by life. And so Solomon says that wise men can see, uh, wise men can see farther and understand more. And that seems good to him. And then as Solomon uses that ability to look farther than fools and see a little more, his perspective changes. And this is when he makes an upsetting realization. Look, if you would, at the end of verse 14. The wise man's head, our eyes are in his head. He can see the fool walks in darkness. And yet I know that one faith, uh, one fate befalls them, them both. I know that one faith, fate, I should say, befalls them both. Solomon starts to feel a little secure in his books, a little secure in his philosophy, a little secure in his wisdom. But he lifts up his head, and he looks beyond his study, and out there on the horizon comes a a distressing comprehension. (laughs) Verse 15, Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I become extremely wise? Solomon doesn't just see the end of the wise and the fool of light. He knows this reality applies to him. This is a personal application. Notice what he says here in verse 15. Then I said to myself, your translation might say in your heart. It's in his heart. He says to himself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me, one commentator said the literal rendering of the Hebrew is, as the fate of the fool, even me, is what Solomon is saying. It will happen to me. What will happen to Solomon? Death. Solomon stares at his books, and they give him the ability to see farther, and when he looks farther, the face that he sees is death. And all of his degrees and all of his study and all of his philosophies just blow away like the wind. Do you like to think about death? 
I don't like to think about death. I think you're weird if you like to think about death. In fact, whenever you go to a funeral, you feel like there's something wrong going on there. I mean, we talk about sorrow. You see someone crying, and it's legitimate sorrow. They're going to miss this person that's gone. And Christians go there. They sorrow with, with hope. And unbelievers have no hope. There's, there's just sorrow. There's the sense that it's not supposed to be this, this way. You look at a picture of someone in their prime. You look at, you look at a picture of, of someone in their military uniform whenever they're, whenever they're, they just got out of basic training and, and they've just come back from Paris Island and they're all nice and tanned and they're toned from everything that they're doing. And you put the picture of that person up beside that, that same person whenever they're 75 or 80 or, or whatever it is and you go, wow, what a few years it makes. And you say, there's something that doesn't feel right about this. Death is not a pleasant topic. But do you think about it at all? Or do you just keep your hands moving with activity or your head down pursuing knowledge so, so you can pretend it's not coming? It's coming. It's not right, but, it, but it's coming. And Solomon says the wise man can see death coming and he contemplates it. And he says it's better than the mindless tumble into death taken by a fool. Solomon says you're a fool if you don't consider death, and so you can prepare for it. But both the wise man and the fool, neither can do anything to stop it. And that's frustrating. Both the wise and the fool will die. Both end up in the ground. And that brings Solomon right back to where he started as the wise man, he looks to the end, he sees death, which is coming for both him and the fool. The guy with the Ph.D. and the man who failed his GED, they're both placed in the same three-and-a-half-foot-wide, eight-foot-long hole. And they're both separated by the same four-foot strip of, of grass. You ever been to the cemetery lately? There are no degrees listed after someone's name on the headstone, is there? Here lies Brian Farrell, B, uh, BA, MDiv, DMIN, Employee of the Year, 2005, whatever, whatever. <laughs> There's nothing but a name and a date and a dash, and that dash represents your life, including the eight years and $90,000 you spent on your master's degree in sociology or whatever it is. Solomon says, what does knowledge get you if that is all there is, if this is all there is? Well, he answers it. it. It bought you the ability to see the graveyard faster and better than the pothead who didn't finish school. That, that's what it gets you. And both of you will be forgotten by others. Look at verse 16. I said to myself, this too is vanity, for there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool die alike. Walt Kaiser said of this verse, if that's true, then, and that's all there is, then life feels like a cheat. It's like it's unfair. Mm, that's what Solomon is saying. Doesn't death lead you to feel that way? That means life promises... Uh, 
it'll get better if you if you work hard or if you grow more intelligent. But but then in the end, it's all gone. And and Solomon says that that the grave makes you no better than the fool. And all the labor spent gaining wisdom is of little value if it's lost by the grave. And there's only the grave. And and there's no purpose in this life, and, and there's nothing after the grave. And that brings him to a demoralizing deduction. Verse 17. So I hated life. It's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? For the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Remember what Solomon is doing. The feelings that you have right now are purposeful. He's pulling you down under the water, weighting you down. So you'll stop looking under the water and you'll look above the water to Christ. Solomon says in verse 17, as he thinks, if this is all there is and the grave negates it all and there's nothing more than I hate life, he finally Initially, he finds something positive in his pursuit of academia, but in the end, he concludes, the wise man may use bigger words and more words, but they die too, so what's the point? And that's exactly the demoralizing deduction that millions of people come to whenever they buy into secularism and naturalism and Darwinism and any other ism that's out there, isn't it? Maybe you feel that way this morning. If you are a cosmic happenstance, if there's no right or wrong, if there's nothing, if, if we're all nothing more than upright goo in the universe, no matter what you do, you're headed back to the dirt and the worms eat you, then what's the point? Life has no real purpose. It has no real, real meaning. If there's nothing more, no justice, no reward, and that's the end, then who really cares anyway? Because if no one else cares, like God, or there is no God, then, then why should I? And that's really what the philosophies of the world tell people. You're alone. You have no meaning and no purpose, and in the end, you die. And that's why there's depression and hopelessness and suicide, and that's why it rains all over the world. And why people turn to to to, to stuff that destroy them, whether it's success or sex or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is, just to give them a little flash of something in a world that has said to them, you don't mean anything and there is, there is nothing more. The world says that because it's rejected the one person who can give them hope. You see, life without God doesn't make sense. It really doesn't. But there is more, isn't there? There's a God who loves you and who can forgive you and has promised to make this entire world right one day if you'll come to Him. Solomon says when you pursue human reasoning without God, it ends in the same place, nothingness. And he'll look one final place before concluding his solution. Solomon is tenacious, maybe like some of you. He's not going to give up yet. He's going to look one final place. We'll call it the posterity solution. 
After concluding that both wealth and wisdom are dead in streets, Solomon says, well, maybe I'll look beyond the grave. He says, death will rob me of whatever knowledge and wealth I have, whatever I obtain, but maybe, maybe I can leave it to somebody who will do something good with it. Maybe, maybe I'll leave it to my kids who will come after me. Maybe I die, but, but maybe I can set up a, a family trust so, so my kids can be better off than, than I am. I mean, maybe I'll leave my research to, to those who will, who will follow me, and, and they'll, they'll go farther than, than I did. You hear people say that all the time. I want my kids to go farther than, than me. That's the reason I'm doing everything that, I, that, I, that I'm doing. Solomon embraces the, I, could, I may die, but I can make the world a better, a better place argument for meaning. Could leave something for others to build on. He toys with this idea and then he throws it in the trash heap with, with the rest of his other notions. Look if you would at verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Solomon says there's no lasting enjoyment of your labors if this is all there is because you'll leave it for someone else and there's no way to know what will happen after you're gone. (laughs) He says you can work as hard as you want and you can even get ahead and, and you're going to leave your pile of stuff for someone who comes after you. The bumper sticker that says he who dies with the most toys wins. You've seen that one before? Solomon says... The bumper sticker should say, he who dies is dead and someone else is playing with your toys. That's what it should say. (laughs) We think we can control things while we're alive and even that's an illusion. Proverbs 23 verse 5 says, when you set your eyes on riches, it's gone, for wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle and flies towards the heavens. It's like a bird, it flies away, you can't hold on to it. 1 Timothy 6 says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Some echoes of Ecclesiastes there. God says, Don't trust in riches, they're uncertain. So what do you do with them? Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may, t- they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Solomon says we have no control when we are dead. And so Paul says you should use it now for God while you can. If you would at verse 19 in Ecclesiastes, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor, for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. You hear his frustration? Solomon says, looking for meaning and effort without God is vanity because you're uncertain who will manage it after you're gone. You, you can't use it after you're gone, and you don't know, you don't know who will. Look at verse 21. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom and knowledge and skill, then he gives his legacy 
to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and great evil. You say, all of these academic pursuits, all of these other pursuits, I'm doing it all for my family. I, I, I don't know why my wife and my children complain about me being gone all the time. I'm doing all this for them. For them. I, I don't know why I'm supposed to feel guilty because I am working outside of the home because I'm doing it for, for my family. And, and there's some truth to working for your family. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You know that proverb? But Solomon said that's no place to find ultimate meaning because your children may be wise, they may be fools, and your grandchildren may be even worse. Here's a perfect place to see how the wisdom books, uh, how, they, how they hold each other in orbit. Proverbs gives a generally wise principle. Good men and women take care of their families. Leave an inheritance for your children's children. Ecclesiastes says, but that's not where you look for meaning. If it is, you're going to be disappointed because the curse reigns. And you have no control whether they'll be wise or whether they'll be foolish. Think about it. You go the extra mile, you work hard your whole life, your business grows. In fact, you go from five employees then to ten, and finally you get close to a hundred. You can remember what it was like just starting out, peddling your invitation or knocking on doors to bid a job, and you set out to go farther than your parents, and you did. I mean, your motive wasn't to live uh, the lifestyle of the, of the rich and famous, but you just simply, I want my kids to grow, grow up better than I did. I want them to have a better life, and so you labor toward that goal, and you make it. You're not Bill Gates, but your company's successful. You're, you're successful in whatever you do. You have something of value to leave your children and your grandchildren. But then as time moves on, you eventually come to the end and you die. Solomon says, who will manage it all after you're gone? What will your employees do or your children do with what you have left to them if that's what you're seeking for meaning. Solomon says you have no way of knowing. Everything that you thought that made you something or someone is placed in the hands of another and there's nothing that you can do about it. And we actually have an example of that feeling that comes once a year, don't we? It's called paying taxes. It's frustrating, isn't it? You know why it's frustrating? Well, all kinds of reasons. But what do you feel when you, when you write that check? You feel, I worked for that, right? And the government didn't. And not only that, they're going to waste whatever I, whatever I give them on stupid stuff or wicked things. And that's why we hire accountants to help us keep more and stay out of jail in the process. Solomon says, you know what's more frustrating than that? All your years of working and saving, all your accountants combined can't help you control what happens to all of it when you're gone. Death is like your April, all of your April 15ths combined and then putting them on steroids. And that's why Jesus says, laying on up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and thieves can break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. And if what Solomon is saying here bothers you too much, it's a good indication that you love your stuff or your 
or your wisdom or whatever you have a little too much. It's a tool used by you for righteousness while you're here, and then your use of it is over, and someone else will will take it after that. And Solomon says if you hope in it, you're going to feel like vanity. So, so he ends with a question in verse 22. For what does a man get in all of his labor and all of his striving which he labors under the sun? What do you really get, he says? He answers it in verse 23. Because all his days is it's painful and grievous, and even at night his mind does not rest. This too is, is vanity. Solomon says if you put meaning in what you accomplish in life, death will rob you of all you've worked for, and all you'll get while you're alive is a lot of meaningless stress. Solomon says even at night... Your mind won't rest. That's what that means at the end of verse 23. Your mind does not rest. The Hebrew says, your mind runs even at night. Ever happened to you? Your body is tired, weary from the day, but your mind decides, I don't want to lay down, (laughs) and I'm not going to lay down. It's still going a million miles an hour. You lay down, and all you can think about is what you didn't get done today and what has to be done tomorrow, the person you owe a bid, the boss that wanted his project last week. The three B's, replace your Z's, Bill's, Bank, and the boss. (laughs) And if that's the way you live, you need to find a different master. And I can introduce you to one. (laughs) My master says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble of heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Oh, there is work and there's a yoke and there's a load to carry, but in Christ there's also rest. And my master never overloads his mule. Hallelujah. You see, living for God doesn't mean inactivity or no frustration, but you can get rest from it. Because all that matters is His agenda, not your own. You'll see your wealth and your knowledge as a tool to be used for Him, not to find meaning. And Solomon found nothing in life brings satisfaction. And so he finally comes to his conclusion. And here is where you find a ray of hope. Look, if you would, to verse 24. Your translation says, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also, I've seen, is from the hand of God. I've been telling you several places in Ecclesiastes, God actually tells us how we can enjoy something in a cursed world. And this is one of those places. But before that, Solomon is going to explain us us why. His search came up empty. And why your search is going to come up empty. Now, I'm not going to get technical on you, but I, but I do need to tell you that in verse 24 is a very unfortunate translation. All right? In verse 24, the English actually inserts a word that is not in, in the Hebrew. And it changes the way that, that you read it. The English inserts the word better than and inserts a comparative that's not in the original text and it's been supplied by our English 
translators, all of them. And I won't bore you with the technical details, but but it, the English translations assume a Hebrew preposition, a, a min, has dropped out due to a due to a copyist error, and it's definitely not in the in the Masoretic text. Let me give it to you without that added word and see if it makes better sense to you. Here's the a literal rendering. There is nothing good in a man to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. The Hebrew doesn't have the comparative in it. It doesn't have the better than. There is nothing good in a man is literally what the Solomon wrote whenever he started. There's nothing good in a man to enjoy his food and his labor. And look at the rest of the verse. To tell himself that his labor is good. And where has Solomon been looking for meaning for the last two chapters? Where has he been searching for enjoyment and meaning? My labors, my pleasure, my pursuit of wisdom in himself. And so now he concludes there is nothing good in a man, in himself. He tells us why you're not able to find satisfaction without God. You don't have the capacity. There's nothing good in you. And look at where that came from. Solomon tells us. How did this come to be? This also I have seen. It is from the hand of of God. Solomon says, not only is life cursed, but we're cursed. And part of the curse is God has taken away your ability and my ability to be satisfied, completely satisfied, when you're living in a Genesis 3 world. He's removed our capacity to find lasting satisfaction here. And Solomon says it's baked in the cake. You can't get around it. Part of the curse is dissatisfaction. You will not, in fact, you cannot find lasting enjoyment on a search on your own or looking within yourself. And look at verse 25. You can't find it without God. He explains what he means. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? Without Him, there is no lasting enjoyment. That's exactly what Romans 8 says. Romans 8 says the whole creation was subjected to futility. And that means your heart has no ability to find lasting satisfaction in anything or anyone. And Genesis 3 says from the dust you came and now you'll work with frustration in the dust and then you'll go back to the dust. And part of that curse is God has removed from you the ability to find lasting satisfaction in anything other than Him. And yet, even in that curse, there's a hidden measure of grace, isn't there? You see, the curse removed our ability to find satisfaction in anything in creation apart from God. And that's exactly what God uses to lead us back to Him, isn't it? The curse puts the sinner 
on an endless search to find something or someone to satisfy. And every road they go down, the door is slammed in their face until finally they sit in the dust and say, is there anything, is there anyone who can give satisfaction to my soul and make sense of this, of this mess? And so even in the curse brought by our sin, God places a dose of mercy. And when you finally turn to Him, the search is over. Aren't you tired of the endless search for something better, something that satisfies? Come to Jesus Christ. He's the water. If you drink, you'll never thirst again. (laughs) He's the bread. If you eat it, you'll never be hungry again. And once you find Him, you can even enjoy the things that only brought futility before. Look at verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. And for the sinner, this too is vanity and striving after the wind. If Christ wasn't enough, <laughs> when you do come to Him, God gives you back some of that satisfaction. Here's the ray of hope. That's not like it was when there was no curse. There would still be frustration and futility. It's a fallen world. But those who have ended their search in Christ can find true wisdom. Look at what he says. He'll give you wisdom and knowledge and joy. True wisdom. God even grants it whenever you ask it. What does James 1 says? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask the giving God. You'll have knowledge, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that you may know Him. You can know God and you can know His ways. You're given happiness. You're given joy in labor that matters, in family, joy in things to, that you can give to God. And, and all that even under the curse. Because now you know the source. It's not in you. There's nothing good in you to tell yourself. It's in Him. It's not here. But to the sinner, there's none of that. All the unbeliever has to hope for in this crooked, broken, fallen world is a life of frustration, futility, emptiness, and then they die. Life to them is like trying to catch the wind. No wonder they're hopeless. But did you know that's also where you come in as a believer? Here's another measure of grace. God has left you and me here in a Genesis 3 world to tell all of the others that haven't found, they haven't ended the search, where the search can be be ended. You can tell them the reason they're not finding what they're looking for. And you can tell them where the oasis is. What a privilege. It's one of the reasons the curse remains. So God could be long-suffering to sinners and give them a chance to repent. What a gracious, gracious God we serve. Don't you bow your heads?